must Jesus bear the cross alone? That's the title of my sermon today. The text is going to be taken from Mark chapter 15. Next weekend is the Passion Play, as we've already stated. And after that is Easter Sunday, the sunrise service at 7 o'clock, and then the Easter morning worship at 10 o'clock right here. And as we have approached the week of Passion, we have been looking at the events in the life of Jesus leading up to the resurrection. And today we ask the question, must Jesus bear the cross alone? You've heard me in the past speak of songs in the church and the shelf life that songs have. Not all songs today or in any generation have a life beyond a a year or two or even less. The truth is that most songs have a shelf life of, even if they become popular, of less than a year or two. The old hymn, Must Jesus Bear the Cross Alone, is one that most of us are familiar with, if you've been in church for a while. You're familiar with that, that song. It was written in 1693. <clears throat> now that's a shelf life. Written by Thomas Shepard. And it's a blessing today. <clears throat> Originally the song was written, Shall Simon Bear the Cross Alone and All the Saints Go Free? And the reason for that is because Shepard was a preacher and he <clears throat> wrote the hymn <clears throat> after preaching a message about Simon Peter and giving the information that he is believed to have been crucified upside down and uh, as a martyr in the early church. Later on, the hymn was changed to more appropriately reflect Jesus. And here's the most famous stanza of the hymn. Must Jesus bear the cross alone and all the world go free. Yes, there's a cross for everyone, and there's a cross for me. It's a very powerful song. It's a a theological song, something that we don't think about very often, is that much of what we sing, we're singing our theology. We're singing what we believe. We're singing of the grace of God. We're singing of the power of the cross. We're singing of the mercy of God. And so that is great theology. And today we're going to look at that theology, the theology of the crucifixion, and we're going to try to discover what Jesus bore when he bore the cross. What was he bearing for you and what was he bearing for me? Well, the first thing is that Jesus was bearing the blame. Have you ever been a an innocent victim have you ever been someone who was either accused of something that you didn't do or you were victimized by someone though there was nothing that you had done to bring it on every day the news is filled with stories about innocent victims people who have been robbed or assaulted even murdered and it's always unsettling when we hear the tragic story of an an innocent victim. In all of history, 
there was never been a more innocent victim than Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the ultimate innocent victim. Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 22 and 3, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Though innocent of any sin ever, ever, Jesus would bear the cross, and he would bear it alone. Mark 15 and verse 1, the beginning of our text. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Here is Jesus bearing the blame, the blame of angry men. The chief priest had been challenged by Jesus, the very presence of Jesus, the very words of Jesus, the very life of Jesus had challenged the chief priest. It had challenged their teachings. It had challenged their, their lifestyle. It had challenged their authority, challenged the intent of their hearts, and so much more had been put on notice by the life and the teachings of Jesus. As long as they could maintain that the Messiah has not yet come, they could continue with all of those things. They could continue to make the people live under the rule that they had established. As long as they could continue to maintain that there was no Messiah. The triumphant entry of Jesus on Palm Sunday had brought them to the place of wanting only one thing, and that is the destruction of Jesus. How much longer would they be able to hold off the idea that Jesus was the Messiah? How much longer could they hold him off? How much longer could they hold him back? And they wanted only one thing, to see him destroyed so that they wouldn't be destroyed. So they had Jesus accused and brought before Pilate. Pilate was the Roman governor of Judea. He was not a part of the church. He wasn't one of the chief priests. He didn't have authority in the church, but he had governmental authority. He was the the governor of Judea, and so they brought him before the governor of Judea. And again, Jesus was willing for all of this. He was willing to be blamed. He was willing to be falsely accused. Because it was the will of the Father. It was not only the will of the Father, it was his own desire. It was his own plan. The blame of angry men was something that he expected, something that he embraced, something that he was ready for. No problem with the blame of angry men. It was angry and it was awful. But Jesus would bear the blame of angry men and also the blame of an agitated mob. Mark 15 and verse 6. Now, at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner whom uh, they had asked, talking about the governor of of, uh, Judea. And among the rebels in the prison, 
who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, this is very interesting, listen to what Pilate says and why he says it. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, or for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. That's interesting, isn't it? Pilate had the perception that the only reason Jesus was there was because the chief priests were jealous, and that they had delivered him up for that reason. And so he asked them, is that what you want me to do? But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him released, to have him released for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What what evil has he done? And they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. Having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. The crowds that had just welcomed Jesus on Palm Sunday were now only days later calling for his crucifixion. What had happened to them? Well, the thing that had happened to them is that they got caught up in a mob mentality. They were protesting and rioting and calling for the crucifixion of Jesus without even knowing why they were protesting and calling for the crucifixion of Jesus. The chief priest had stirred them up. The chief priest had caused this. You say, Pastor Ray, things don't happen like that. Oh, they certainly do. Mob mentality loses sight of any sense of reason. Most of us have been to football games where a bad call incensed the whole stadium. In fact, referees have police escorts out of the stadium because people lose a sense of who they are when the mob gets together. We have seen it on television when people riot without knowing why they are rioting or by believing or being agitated by misinformation. Imagine all the worst of human behavior and you'll get the sense of what Jesus experienced at the wishes of an agitated mob. He was bearing the shame because of angry men who had stirred up and agitated a mob and made them angry too for no reason other than that he was carrying out the will of the Father, that he was carrying out his own will, that he was becoming sin for us. Here we see in our text Jesus bearing the blame. We also see him bearing the cross. There's nothing I can say to make the cross more vivid or horrific than it was. Not one thing I can say. You'll see an excellent depiction of the cross, the North Florida Passion Play, next Sunday. But even still, it does not come close to the repugnance of the crucifixion. The most effective thing we can do to even try to understand the cross is walk through the verses descriptive of the cross. In bearing the cross, Jesus would experience the suffering Verse 16 
of Mark 15. And the soldiers led him inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. You might want to underscore that. They clothed him in a purple cloak and twisted together a crown of thorns and they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. Well, first... There is the fact that the whole battalion was summoned. Now, if indeed they summoned an entire battalion of soldiers for this scene, that was 600 soldiers. 600 that they brought in to handle this one Innocent, docile, complacent prisoner. 600 to handle the one. Now there are some who say, well, it wasn't a whole battalion, it was only a representation of the battalion. Well, if it's a third of the battalion, it's 200 to handle this one innocent prisoner. The Bible says, in whom was found no guile, no wrong doing. It's a bit of an overkill for one who had willingly surrendered himself. They also felt it necessary to make fun of Jesus and to torture him in the course of it. Verse 15 says, they scourged Jesus. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released them for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. I realize that Many of you, maybe most of you, know about the, the scourge and know what the scourging was, but some of you don't. So let me give you some background on what the scourging of Jesus was. Actually, some new information that, to me, I didn't realize. <clears throat> the Roman scourge was certainly a whip. It was made of leather straps and embedded in those leather straps at various intervals was sharp bone and metal. That's what was in the scourge, in this this whip of of many straps. You could think of it as a cat of nine tails if you wanted to. Peter, in his first epistle, used these words in chapter 2, verse 24, with whose stripes you were healed. Stripes. We all think of the stripes on Jesus' back. You'll see the stripes on Jesus' back when you come to the Passion Play. Something interesting, Larry and Susie. In the Greek, the word stripes in 1 Peter 2.24 is a singular number. It's not a multiple number. It's a singular number. And the implication is very simple. It refers to the bloody back of Jesus, the mass of a bloody back. Our Lord's back was so lacerated by the scourge that it was one mass of open, raw flesh trickling with blood. 
perhaps not a series of stripes and cuts, but a massive bleeding because all of the back was stripes and cuts. That was Jesus bearing the cross. On that scourged back, the soldiers placed a a purple cape of sorts, mockery. The the robe of of royalty, they threw it on his back. They just mocked Jesus because he would be called the king of the Jews, so they were mocking him. And they took thorns and they made a, a crown. They pushed down on the head of Jesus. Shoved a crown of thorns on his head. You ever gotten a thorn in your finger? You ever stepped on one? You ever brushed up against a thorn in the woods and had it cut your leg? You ever thought about making a crown of those things and what it would be like to press it down on the tenderness of your head? They placed a crown of thorns on his head. They beat Jesus on the head with reeds. Beat him and bowed down in mockery. Just a few days earlier, they had waved palms at the triumphant entry of Jesus, and now he was beaten. He had been scourged, a, play, a, a, a crown of thorns placed on his head, and, and a purple garment of types laid on the rawness of his back. And people now, instead of bowing and, and throwing palms at his feet, were taking reeds, and the same people beating him on the head and bowing in mockery. The suffering of the cross. Well, it's not over. After the suffering came the strain. We cannot allow ourselves to forget that while Jesus was entirely God, he was entirely man. <clears throat> he was the God-man in the truest sense. There has never been another like Jesus, and there will never be another like Jesus. I say that because the suffering was real. It wasn't that Jesus kind of in his godness numbed himself to the suffering. It was in his humanity that he bore the suffering, that he took the suffering. This is not something that was made to seem real. It was very real. Jesus fell beneath the strain of the cross. They made him carry his own cross up to Golgotha, and he fell beneath the strain of the cross. And so there was a man who was singled out to carry the cross the rest of the way. Verse 22, and they compelled a passerby, Simon of Serene, who was coming in from the country the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. In the Passion Play, you'll see that character played by Steve Davis. And there's a reason that Steve Davis plays the role. His skin was brown like Simon of Serene. And his role in history of of the cross is forever settled. Simon of Serene was from Libya. If he lived in America, we'd call him an African-American. This is why we ask Steve Davis to 
to play the part, to, to play the role. His name, that is Simon of Serene, his name is forever settled as the one who was compelled to carry the cross, but he seemed willing to help Jesus in the time of greatest strain. I love the person of Simon Serene. We talk about Simon of Serene. We talk about the people we want to see in heaven and meet in heaven. And I realize that everyone will pale in comparison to Jesus. But it would be nice to get a glimpse of Simon of Serene. It would be nice to see the man who last touched the cross that Jesus bore, who took it from Jesus and carried it the rest of the way. My brother Wayne lives in Lebanon, Tennessee. I can remember my brother singing a song with these words, I traveled down a lonely road and no one seemed to care. The burden on my weary back had bowed me to despair. I oft complained to Jesus how folks were treating me. Then I heard him say so tenderly, my feet were also weary upon that Calvary road. The, The cross became so heavy, I fell beneath the load. Be faithful, weary pilgrim, the morning I can see. Just lift your cross and follow close to me. Today, Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father with a total, complete, 100% understanding of our cares and burdens of life. He knows our sorrows. He knows our strains. He is touched, the Bible says, with the feeling of our infirmity. He too was under the strain, and he needed someone to help him bear up in his flesh, in his humanity. He was under the strain and, and was in great need of someone to come alongside him. And he understands that in your life, and he understands that in mine. All of the experiences of Jesus gave him the understanding of you and me so that we are never alone in whatever it might be that we're going through. The cross was our companionship and suffering. The burden of the cross includes the suffering and the strain. And it also includes the scene. Verse 22, and they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garment among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. 
So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe, they called out. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. In Jerusalem, the opportunity to view Golgotha is from below, about halfway down the face of the hill. And the place where you stand is like standing at an overlook. You see the overlooks on the side of the the road. It's like standing at a a small overlook. And you're standing where you can see the face of Golgotha, but you can't get to the top of Golgotha. You're looking at about halfway up the face of Golgotha. And you can very clearly see why it's called Golgotha, the place of the skull. Because on the side of Calvary's hill is the skull that you're looking at right there. And when I stood there many years ago and looked at that, I was overwhelmed with the reality this is the place of the skull. This is the scene This is where it happened. The scene of the cross is hard to imagine, but it is described in detail, but also described as the purpose of the cross. Must Jesus bear the cross alone? Well, he did bear the blame of the cross, and the cross itself, because Jesus was bearing our sin. Continuing on, verse 33, and when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the face, the whole land, until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders heard it. Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Jesus uttered a loud cry beneath his uh, and breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. If you've been here for the past two Sundays, you have some insight into this. And first of all, these last words, the fact that, that Jesus became sin for us was the ultimate sacrifice. We're moved by the scourge, and we should be. When I talked to you about the scourge earlier, and I said that it, 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 was, uh, it, it was indeed perhaps a solid bloodiness on the back of Jesus. That's moving. It almost turns your stomach. When they placed a crown of thorns on him and nails in his hands and nails through his feet, when you see that, when you see that next Sunday and, and, and you see they place in the hands of Jesus nails in his hands and nails in his feet, 
It's horrid. It's, it's horrific. And we're moved by those things. And we should be moved by those things. As moving as they are, they're not the worst part of the cross. Well, how can you say that? How can you say that the scourge, and how can you say that the mockery, and how can you say that the crown of thorns, and how can you say that the nails in his hands and his feet were not the worst parts? Well, I'll tell you, the worst part was beyond that. The worst part was the fact that there was this sacrifice and conflict within the the very being of Jesus. He became something he had never been for, for only one reason, so that we could be reconciled to him. He, we could not go to him, so he found a way to come to us. And the way that he found to come to us was to become something that he was never in all of eternity, and that is sin for us. The thing that died on the cross was the sacrifice for our sin. I cannot describe for you through beating, through nails, through thorns in his head, I cannot describe for you what that's like, that he became sin for us. I would say this, the worst loss you have ever had, ever the loss that broke your heart so deeply you thought you could never recover from it. The loss that left you without words to say. The loss that left you only with bitter tears to weep. The loss that was so hard you never dreamed that it would happen to you. That loss, if that loss is the only kind of pain that I can possibly say to you, that would bring you anywhere close to understanding the pain that Jesus was suffering on the cross. 23 years ago, I received word that my brother, the brother closest to me in age, had died. Tommy and Donna were in Texas when he died. They were in his church. He was a member of their church in Texas. Tommy, I've never had a loss like that. Not before, not since. I lost my mother and my dad, but it was nothing like losing my brother. Nothing. And I got to Texas for the funeral, and my other brother, Wayne, and my my sisters, they came. And we couldn't say anything. We could only weep great tears of loss. I remember hugging my brother Wayne and crying. And my brother Wayne could only say this, I know, I know, I know. Such a deep and a hard loss. Jesus said, my God, my God. I've lost you for now. Why have you forsaken me? It it was 
that same loss exacerbated and, and driven deep down inside of his soul. That loss, that separation. We say, you'll see your loved one again, and there's some comfort in that. And Jesus was going to see the Father, but there had never been a time when his Father had turned his face from Jesus. And he became sin for us. The words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Actually, they're more rhetorical than they are anything. He spoke these words for our benefit, that we might know the conflict of the cross, the extent of the sacrifice. He wanted you to know how deep it was to him. He wanted you to know how deep down inside this thing felt. It was more, much more than the physical. It was so much more than the beating and so much more than the nails and so much more than the, the, the conflict and, and so much more than, than the, the mocking. It was the conflict of his holiness in acceptance of our sins. The deepest and most horrific point of the cross came at the very end when Jesus himself would taste something that he didn't deserve to taste, the sting of death. That was the hardest point. 1 Corinthians 15, 55, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Listen to this. The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus comes to his last words with his last breath. In the detail of John's account of the crucifixion, there are three words that are given in his last breath. I think it's the cry that we read about in in Mark's uh, depiction of the, or description of the cross. It's not a cry of defeat. I believe it's a cry of victory. After Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed down and gave up his spirit. You know, most people read that. It is finished. I don't read it that way. I never have. I believe it was the ultimate, ultimate statement of victory over sin. He had become sin for us and said, It is finished! Done! And he breathed his last. And you know something? The sacrifice of sin had been paid. The blood of Jesus had been shed. He took his last breath. And when the death of Jesus on the cross came to the end, they thought, that is, the people around the cross who were near him, thought that they had come to the end of a great relationship, a so close relationship. And finally came the last goodbyes. When the centurion who stood facing him saw that 
In this way he breathed his last. He said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Jim, that centurion heard, it is finished. That centurion experienced in the face of Jesus the conflict of becoming sin for us. That centurion experienced darkness on the face of the earth. And, and the, the, the veil had been rent in twain. And, and he heard uh, Jesus say, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he's heard the cry, the victory cry of, it is finished. And he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Truly, he was the Son. There were also women looking from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were so many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Some believed, some grieved, some ministered. All were impressed by the death of one who was innocent and pure. In three days, they would discover something greater than anything they could ever have imagined. This was bigger than him walking on the water. This was bigger than feeding the 5,000. This was bigger than raising Jairus' daughter. This was bigger than turning water to wine. In, In three days, they were going to discover that Though he was dead, yet shall he live. In three days they were going to discover it, but now it was their last goodbyes. Jesus is really going to be raised from the dead. And Jesus will really defeat the grave. Forgive my use of this term, but I ask you this. What difference at this point does it make? What makes all the difference in eternity? It makes all the difference in the world. It makes the difference between purpose and no purpose. It makes the difference between fullness and emptiness. emptiness. It makes the difference between the will to go on and the sense of defeat. Jesus the resurrection, the the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus makes all the difference.